You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. My name is Father Romanus Cesario. I teach moral theology at St. John Seminary in Brighton, Massachusetts. We're filming these sessions in the Cardinal Cushing classroom of St. John Seminary. And during the course of this lecture, you will see images from the Romanesque chapel built at the end of the 19th century here in Boston that serves as the seminary's main chapel. The picture that you will see is that of Archbishop John Williams, the first archbishop, the fourth bishop of Boston, offering the seminary, as it appeared in around 1890, to the apostle and evangelist, St. John, who accompanied by the great eagle, which is his symbol among the evangelists, is lifting the seminary and its inhabitants up to the Blessed Trinity. It is, of course, a favorite image in the chapel for generations of priests who have studied here. But it also serves to recapitulate some of the instruction that we have accomplished up to this point in this series, which is entitled The Elements of Moral Theology. This is the fourth lecture in that series and is devoted to the question of human action and its evaluation. The reason why I direct your attention to the image of Archbishop Williams offering the seminary to St. John the Evangelist who in turn offers it to the Blessed Trinity is because up to this point, we have insisted upon moral theology as part of God's saving instruction to his people. The moral theologian practices the Sacra Doctrina, to use the favorite expression of St. Thomas Aquinas. He practices, if you will, a science that is dependent upon and assured by divine revelation. It is then a discussion that the moral theologian undertakes directed toward God. In the last lecture, when we spoke about natural law, we defined the overall conception that governs this presentation of natural law as man set between 
God and God. In the image that will appear on your screen, you will see that movement represented in the artist's techniques whereby he communicates an upward sweep from the hands of the bishop through the seminary to St. John, to his eagle, to the Trinity. It is, if you will, the reverse motion, the return to God of an act of praise. That is to say, God has given to us and given to us in Christ, to be sure, the eternal Son, the incarnate Son, the incarnate wisdom of God, the wisdom of God which emerges quite understandably, isn't it true, in that creature created in God's very own image. It is a wisdom that is dynamic and which points us back to God, back to a perfection that finds its ultimate consummation in beatific fellowship or communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'd like to draw your attention to a textbook which has received much favorable comment in the United States since its appearance about five years ago in English. The text is by Dominican Father Surveys Pinquez, who is now Emeritus Professor of Moral Theology at the University of Fribourg in Switzerland. Father Pinquez's text in English translation is called The Sources of Christian Ethics. The title was a concession to the marketing people at Catholic University of America Press because in French the title ran Les Sources de la Morale Chrétienne, the sources, if you will, of Christian morality. I make that observation because some of you will recall that in the very first lecture, I identified the difference between Christian morality and ethics, in part at least, by reference to the fact that Christian morality takes account of the big picture, whereas ethics, at least as it is practiced in much contemporary theory limits itself to more particular questions and attempts to resolve them by appeal to its own principles. Everything that we have said up to this moment in these lectures on the elements of moral theology have pointed to just how big that picture is. It's the big picture of creation. It's the big picture of eternal law of how God knows the world to be. It's the big picture of divine beatitude, the theologian's term for happiness used, as I have suggested already, 
to ensure that no one misses the point that the Christian life is ordered towards a kind of friendship or fellowship with God himself that transforms every form of natural felicity or happiness. And yet, as we discussed in the last lecture on natural law, this felicity that is beatitude and which is perfective of the human person in his or her deepest yearnings and longings, if you will, cannot be achieved or cannot be separated artificially from those ends that form part, and indispensably so, of our human perfection or completion. In the last lecture, I identified three basic ends, life, human sexuality, the coupling of male and female, truth-telling, communication, friendship, if you will. I identified three basic elements that the tradition has recognized as the foundational ends, perfecting ends. And I could have included many, many more. Indeed, I could have included as many ends as there are virtues to achieve them, but suffice it for the moment, for the purpose of our discussion of natural law, to speak about, again I say, these are the three traditionally considered basic ends of perfections. At the end of the last lecture as well, and to continue the theme that this is the big picture, not only is it big picture of creation, big picture of eternal law, how God knows the world to be, the big picture of final beatitude, the big picture of the ends that perfect every human creature, but it is also what many would recognize as the biggest picture of all, and that is the picture that you saw so beautifully represented in the last lecture, the picture from Calvary, the picture of the cross of Christ. The cross that gives meaning now to everything that transpires within the world. You know that the patristic authors like to interpret the four points of the cross, north, south, east, and west, as representing Christ's lordship over the whole of creation. What is more important, Christ's death on the cross is the sacrificial action that breaks open the world of divine grace and divine love, that makes it possible for the moral theologian to stand here in front of you and to make the most outrageous claim, namely, that to live a certain kind of life, one perfectly in conformity with natural law as the church understands it, is also to lay claim to that gift which is beyond all 
human telling, that gift which is surely beyond all human effort, that gift beyond all human description, and that is friendship with the living God. Morals then obliges us, Christian moral theology, obliges us to take account of the big picture. Perhaps those of you who have studied moral theology or moral philosophy in your courses at college or else in seminary may wonder why is he talking about natural law and Calvary? How do they ever go together? One comes out of the legal tradition of the Romans, the other from the pages of the New Testament. But the answer is simple. The natural law and Calvary go together in the same way that the eternal logos, the eternal word, the pattern, the divine pattern, which the theologian identifies in God as the source of natural law and indeed of natural law precepts and inclinations, that imaging of the eternal word finds its perfection. And in this time of salvation, no other perfection exists, finds its perfection in the salvation won for us by Christ on his cross, whom we know and confess to be one and the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is forever King of the ages. Natural law and the law of the cross come together for the Christian believer because she or he recognizes that the fulfillment of the natural law and the fulfillment of that vocation to divine friendship that we call beatitude is found only in Christ. And this is why at this point in our discussion, we can turn to the question of human action. What constitutes human action? And perhaps what is more important for our discussion how can we ensure that each human action conforms to the law of Christ and conforms to the natural law? In the very first lecture, I made some rough observations about the difference between the work of the moral theologian and the moral philosopher. In those remarks, I tried then to stress that the moral theologian is caught up in the Sacra Doctrina, 
dependent upon divine revelation, adheres to the guidance of the church's magisterium, which is of course the only sure, truthful and authentic guide to knowing what God has revealed about our salvation, about human action. Now, I would like to stress a point where the moral theologian becomes very dependent upon the moral philosopher. And it is, of course, when it comes to analyzing the dynamics of human action. Professor Ralph McInerney, who serves as president of the International Catholic University, has a treatise in which he discusses the contributions of St. Thomas Aquinas to this project. He writes as a moral philosopher, the book is entitled Aquinas on Human Action, a Theory of Practice. It's a very handy book, by that I mean you can hold it in your hand, take it on the subway, take it on the bus, read it at home. It is not a weighty tome, but it's a handy volume that has the added value of being written by Professor Ralph McInerney, who writes with such great lucidity and talent and has the knack of making very complex discussions readable and understandable by the general reader. I've profited very much from this book, and I know you will too. The reason, of course, why the moral theologian needs to be concerned about a theory of practice is a fairly simple one to discern. We have said that the natural law introduces into us a dynamism, that is to say, rather than being a participation and in an inert and predictable pattern of repetition, a caricature that some people have of natural law, a law of eternal rhythms, for example, the fact of the matter is that the Christian view of natural law sees in it a principle for human creativity and for human freedom. It shapes human freedom. That's why I see the law of the cross and natural law as complementary features of Catholic natural law instruction. Every time one goes to hear mass in a Catholic church, when it comes time for the sacred moment of consecration and the priest begins to introduce the words of institution whereby Christ himself inaugurated the Eucharist and the priest reenacts that sacrificial act, the text of the mass always includes reference to the fact that Christ went forth to his passion on the night before he suffered freely for us, willingly. 
the night before Christ freely gave himself for our salvation. He took bread and so forth. On the cross, Christ is the supremely free man. Truth to be told, natural law provides the matrix for each one of us to achieve and to enact the supreme expression of our human freedom. Just the opposite of predictable, boring repetition and routine. But in order for us to cash in on so great a promise, namely, that when we act in accordance with the divine image that is ours by reason of having been created, and when we act in recognition that natural law is part of our very makeup as human beings, remember the definition, our participation, the rational creature's participation in the eternal law, when we recognize that God knows a human action in the same way that he knows the tree, the sun, the moon, the chair, anything else that he has created, because that knowledge gives to a specific reality the form to make it be what it is. To put simply, there is as much form to a just action, paying a debt, for example, and God knows what that is in the same way that he knows the sun or the whole universe or the smallest subparticle that the scientists can discover in the material universe. All of that is dependent upon God's knowing it and human actions, virtuous actions, are no exception. And it is for this reason that the moral theologian is concerned about identifying a human action. Not everything that the human being does is a human action. In the old scholastic language, the scholastics distinguished between the actus humanus and the actus hominis. The actus humanus, the human action, would have been a moral action. The actus hominis, on the other hand, was simply an action that occurred, if you will, within the human being, within man. The examples usually given, digestion, for example, is not a human act. It's controlled not by our freedom, but rather by another pattern which governs the bodily functions, circulation of blood, all of the things that happen in us, the growing of the beard or the trimming or the growing of fingernails, these sorts of actions go on in us. They themselves are not moral actions, human actions. What is then a human action and what makes it different from an act of man, of course, is a human action is one that proceeds from within, that is, from the interiority of the human person and with some knowledge of the end, the telos, 
that this action is about to accomplish. Interiority, I think, is the simplest one to understand. What's opposed to it, for example, is violence. If my hand is used purely instrumentally to pull the trigger of a gun that's about to explode the brain of another man, it is clear that the action of pulling that trigger, though my hand and finger, in fact, have been used by another force to accomplish it, does not proceed from my interiority. It does not proceed from within me. It is an action imposed on me. It is an action entirely, in this case, extrinsic to me. It does not qualify as a human action or my human action. It could well be the human action, of course, of the person who rendered me in the position of being an instrument for such a depraved act as murder. Knowledge of the end, on the other hand, is somewhat more difficult to see, but in order for an action to be a human action, there must be some way in which I recognize the relationship between that action and a particular end that the action achieves. One of the best examples of this would be invincible ignorance. I proceed to go hunting and thinking that another hunter who perhaps had not put on one of racket is a stag or animal to be hunted. I shoot, but with no knowledge of the end, for after all due precautions, I am persuaded that this rifle shot is directed at an animal, an animal that is legitimate to hunt. This is a classic example from the literature. It proceeds from my interiority because indeed it is I who am pulling the trigger. It does not proceed, however, with knowledge of the end because in the example given, it is supposed that there would be no way for me to know this was not a game animal, but my neighbor. This very brief discussion is an introduction to a theme that you may want to give more study to on your own. It is a discussion that Aquinas uses to preface this whole discussion of human action. And it is a discussion of the condition for any human action, namely that it be voluntary. In the textbook that I have suggested to you by Professor Ralph McInerney, you will find a very good treatment of the voluntary and why it is a precondition for arriving at that point where we can talk about a human action that really belongs to me. We would say today, of talking about a human action that I can own. At this juncture, I would like to point out, however, the importance of the discussion of the voluntary for the big picture. And the importance is this. By talking about an action, a human action, 
as one that proceeds from within, from my interiority, and with due knowledge of the end, the church or the moral theologian is able to establish the connection between the human person as agent and the action that he or she performs. Many of you will have heard of the book that the Holy Father wrote prior to his accession to the See of Peter, the acting person as it's translated in English. And that book is the Pope's own particular way as a theologian of expressing this extremely important point for Christian moral theology, namely the way in which human action is identified with the person. To be more specific, the word I like to use is how it is that the person possesses his or her actions. The reason for that importance is not juridical, namely so that we can reward the good actions, or more importantly punish the bad ones, nor for that matter is it simply philosophical, by simply philosophical I mean is it an exercise in discerning the difference between being and having. What's at stake in this relationship of the human person to his or her actions is the coming into perfection of the imago. Actions change us. In an earlier lecture, I referred to what I like to call the dynamism of natural law or the dynamic aspect of the imago. The reason for insisting upon natural law as dynamic and that the image of God bears within itself the seeds of life, it's an alive image. It's an alive image because it is the image of he who is, who transcends distinctions of being and having indeed transcends being itself. It is an alive image which expresses itself in the only way that the human creature can express him or herself, and that is by acting. Actions change us. Some theologians refer to this as character building the kind of person that I become is dependent upon the kind of actions that I perform. Now this truth may seem self-evident to many of you, and it is, in some traditions, a commonplace. I emphasize it at this juncture in our discussion because, unfortunately, some moral theologians have failed to appreciate exactly how intimate the relationship between our human actions and our human being, between our virtues and our character, if you will, between our Christian living and the imago, 
They have failed to appreciate how intimate the connection is. There are reasons for this, and it is not the place for us to digress into those reasons. However, the result is worthy of note, namely that many moral theologians speak as if human actions are so many appendages onto the human body, which appendages add a certain note of completion, but are not directly related to the substantial thing that the body is. It's actions like fingernails theory. Actions as if what is done has no immediate connection to the human person, but is to be judged simply by appeal to some norm or principle that is worked out by the moral theologian. This rather broadly defined attitude, which like all broadly defined attitudes can be verified in no particular theologian, is very harmful in my judgment for Christian moral theology because it ignores how it is that actions either build us up or tear us down. Better put, how bad actions erode the good of the human person. We'll return to that theme, however, when in the next lecture we talk more about the evaluation of moral actions and the difference between good and bad actions. At this point, I simply want to recall the intimate connection between the acting subject, the person, if you will, the acting person, and the human actions that he or she performs. And I have done that by an appeal to the classical discussion of the voluntary, which discussion makes it very evident and plain that human actions flow from within the person and flow from within the person who possesses some knowledge of the end to which the action is ordered. Now, those of you who have had time to study the materials associated with the third lecture on natural law will perhaps at this point see a pattern emerge that will remain with us for the rest of the discussion of moral theology. And it is a pattern that reflects the two principal spiritual powers of the human person, namely the capacity to know, let's call that intelligence, thus the I, and the capacity to love, and let's represent that with the traditional symbol of a human heart. Interiority, after all, points to the fact that an action proceeds
from my love. It proceeds from that which I choose, from that which I commit myself to, from that which I am engaged in, from that which, in a word, I love and want to give my love to. Even difficult things, like putting up with a burdensome companion or relative or neighbor. The fortitude required to sustain those difficulties is a fortitude that I must love. That's what makes the difference between a brave and courageous friend who sticks by another in time of trial and the person who accomplishes the absolute minimum required of him or her in an effort to acquit himself of a responsibility that he would just as well want to be free of, which is to say, which he is not at all in love with having. And if any of us or any of you have had the opportunity to be cared for in a time of need or when for one reason or another it has been difficult to care for us, you recognize the difference that love makes, the difference between courageous love and simply observing the minimum standards of decency or of respect as the case may be. But commitment, love is not enough to determine the quality of a moral action because we have recognized that knowledge of the end is indispensable and this means that human action then is shaped not only by lovings but also by our knowings and that these two movements of what I will refer to now simply as intellect and will are the indispensable features of human action insofar as it is an authentic expression of any given person. Now what this means for the moral theologian, first of all, of course, is that no single track, that is just knowledge or just love, is sufficient to explain human action. It is not sufficient for the moral theologian to say, all you need to do is know what is right or wrong and that's it. Anyone that would say that would lead the pupil into a great deal of confusion because it is not the case that knowledge alone suffices for the production of that human action that will perfect. By the same token, anyone who would say love alone is sufficient, do the loving thing, realizes or should realize that he has not given sound instruction in human action because it is 
a command impossible to achieve. It's impossible to achieve because it's impossible to know to what extent that action conforms to the truth or not. There are many things that one may love, not all of them are loves shaped by truth. And because a human action, in order to be an authentic expression of the human person, must participate both in the affective as well as the intellective capacities or faculties or powers of the human person, no human action emerges in which both intellect and will are not active participants in, and now I will use a metaphorical term, creating it. Because that's what our actions are. They are our way of participating in God's creative activity. It is the way in which God has provided for the human creature to shape a world of love. It is the task that God has left to us in order to fill up what is lacking in the world, lacking in great measure because of original sin, lacking also because God delights in seeing that his saints grow in love more and more. No action is intelligible apart from the end that it accomplishes. That is why when St. Thomas comes to talk about human actions, all of them, he is content to use a very simple phrase, a few words to talk about human actions. He says, they are those things, ea, quae sunt ad finem. The moral theologian is concerned to know about those things which are to the end, toward the end, those things which move us along to embrace the goods, the good ends more particularly, that perfect us. I use the word embrace in an effort, I hope a successful effort, maybe it isn't, to communicate that while in the end we are judged by love, and thus embrace in its affective sense, at the same time, every human action is shaped by truth. And thus, we embrace those things that we judge to be good. Hardly anyone speaks about embracing bitter medicine. In any event, those things which are to the end, ever let the A stand now, for every human action 
we commit in our lives, each one of them and the composite of them, find their place in our salvation history insofar as they are pointed towards the good ends of human perfection and fulfillment that correspond to how God knows the world to be. At the beginning of this lecture, we recalled what was spoken about in lecture three, the natural law, the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. And in the course of that lecture, I reminded you that the eternal law may be understood as how God knows the world to be. God's knowledge is creative, it is determinative. It creates physical realities, spiritual realities. God also creates moral realities. He creates them in the sense of giving the form to human action to those human actions which are ad fine, or to translate that now, those human actions which achieve the good of the human person, those human actions which perfect us. God knows what they are, and we are, if you will, co-creators with God because we enter into those actions, we commit them freely, which is to say, we choose them. We choose them because we know that they are the true and good actions that will perfect us and in that perfection will lead us to the beatitude that is God's promise, Christ's promise, to those who follow his way. Many theologians have debated the relationship that exists between heavenly beatitude and the perfection that is, for lack of a better term, called natural. And there are wide-ranging and divergent opinions about how to resolve the question of the relationship between natural and supernatural felicity. In an effort to cut through those technical discussions, important as they are, I like to use the word conduce. It's an old English word from the Latin to lead with, conducere. In English, we still talk about a conductor as in wiring. The goods of human perfection then conduce to the goods of beatitude. And if that explanation seems strained or difficult, then I point 
to the text where many places, many texts in the New Testament, where Jesus identifies the love of God and the love of neighbor as fulfilling the same law. Or perhaps let me return to the image which we began this session with, the upward movement of St. John's Seminary, which really represents the church, the pilgrim church, in the hands and under the direction of John the Evangelist, and with his eagle wings that brings everything that is human up into the bosom of the Trinity. That movement is the movement that the moral theologian has great interest in because he or she wants to point out to all Christ faithful the way, the dynamic way that leads to God. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.